Welcome to episode two of Vamps on the Verge. I am Darcy, and my home quarantine haircut has made my cowlicks uncontrollable. I am Dee Dee, and I gave myself a quarantine haircut last night as well. I cut my bangs, and it was a rash decision, <laughs> as all bang cutting is. As it should be. But I feel like I did a good job. Yeah. <laughs> I've done it so many times now that I just like... <sighs> Oh yeah, you just Straight get across. bold. But your bangs look good. Thank you. I'm digging them. I don't really understand personally when people get upset about giving themselves bangs, because to me it's like, that shit's going to grow out so fast. What are you worried True. about? But I think what you were saying about you're having wavy hair. Yeah. Your hair is really forgiving. Not that you couldn't like give yourself a haircut that you were like, oh shoot. But like you can style it and the waves will kind of like have a, st- you know, but if my hair's like stick straight, so if I get the wrong kind of layer or whatever, mm-hmm. it's just very visible. That's been a lifelong problem for me is that people cut everyone's hair as if it's straight. And if it's not straight, they blow dry it to be straight and then they cut it. And I have to constantly <laughs> say, I'm not going to do this. I have curly hair. <laughs> Anyways, things have changed a little bit. But if by <laughs> forgiving you mean that my hair always looks like I just got out of bed and there's nothing really I can do about it. I mean, even when I style it, it kind of looks like that. <laughs> so sure, Love it. wavy hair is forgiving. <laughs> Today we are talking about Sisters. Yeah. Brian De Palma's horror film, Sisters. I'm not sure at what point in Brian De Palma's career this movie fell, mm-hmm. but 72 seems early for him. So it's interesting to see some of the shots in this film and know what movies he made later. Yeah. I don't think I'm as familiar with his movies. Like, I definitely know the name, but I don't know if I've seen very many of his. Carrie, right? And then Believe Scarface. Oh, yeah. Yes, definitely. He, yeah, he made Scarface. Started a lot of movies. Um, Not all great. I've seen, like, pieces of Scarface. That's a really interesting one in comparison to this movie. I feel like it's so masculine, you know? And that's, like, the kind of movie, anything, like, organized crime I tend to avoid, so it makes sense that I'm not as familiar. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, like, I'm not all about Scarface. Not really interested. I had a bad high school boyfriend who was kind of into Scarface. I feel like it's a thing. Godfather and Scarface. I'm supposed to be into these movies. Uh, That's part of why I'm not into it. I feel like it's probably a fine movie, but because it's gotten so, I think like you were just saying, like sometimes I see, I think of it and I just see, you know, people who have like boiled it down to these like really specific moments in the movie that they like admire. And I'm I'm like, just give me Carrie. (laughs) I'm fine with it. Also, oh, he made a a movie called The Fury in the 70s with Kirk Douglas I really liked that one. I think The Fury's been on my list for a while. Did you have a synopsis of this movie? I do. Oh, because, audience, we are going to spoil every little second of this movie. Uh Uh-huh. So if you aren't okay with that, turn this off now. Go watch this movie. And come back. Inquisitive journalist Grace Collier, played by Jennifer Salt, is horrified when she witnesses her neighbor, fashion model Danielle Breton, played by Margot Kidder, 
violently murder a man. Panicking, she calls the police, but when the detective arrives at the scene and finds nothing amiss, Grace is forced to take matters into her own hands. Her first move is to recruit private investigator Joseph Larch, who helps her uncover a secret about Daniel's past that has them both seeing double. Right off the bat, you know I love a good opening sequence, Mm -hmm. and this movie really gives you an opening sequence. Oh, yeah. I feel like we were, like, psychically high-fiving each other because we talked about the intro in the last movie. And when this one started off, like, right out the gate, I was like, yes. Yes. I couldn't believe it. I mean, nothing looks more alien-like than a human fetus. That was very effective as a spooky intro. So it starts off with, like, this little red circle that expands. It gets larger and larger to reveal it's an embryo. And then it's, like, really intense music and you had some thoughts about this music oh yeah i definitely made note of the musician my partner was watching the movie with me and knew who the person was by name Mm. so i wrote it down and that's definitely something i'm going to go on a tangent about yeah but the composer is named bernard herman yeah bernard herman like passed away in 1975 so this is one of the last movies that he worked on as as far as making the score. Thank you for your gift, sir. To great effect, the music is used for sure. And especially right off the bat in the beginning with this intro. Yeah, just all these shots, close-up shots of an embryo in the womb. And they're so creepy and alien-like with the veins and the, the shut eyes and all the, the sort of red yeah. transparent quality to their skin. I thought it was spooky. I liked it. Yeah, it looked very real. I mean, they might have been real fetuses. And then at the end of the, like the last shot that we see are these twin fetuses mm-hmm. that are obviously like sort of connected. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Those ones look less realistic, but still. <laughs> yeah, they look like they kind of like copied one and just stuck it next to the other one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was like fanned out. One and two. Things one and two. They go from this amazing, crazy, wild fetus montage for the credits to showing a woman walking into a dressing room. She's using a cane. Mm-hmm. She's really hitting the walls, and she's and this person is watching her through a, like a hole, like he's going to watch her undress. Yeah, and it lingers on there for a very long time. And I'm thinking, like, where is this going? What's happening? <laughs> I was confused. I, you know, immediately thought this was just part of the movie and we were in a co-ed dressing room, which I'm not sure where those are. Yeah. So this man is in front of this like pink candy striped wall and this blind woman comes in. And this, I'm going to say, this is my first costume appreciation alert right here. Because she is dressed in this amazing white sort of like trench coat jacket with red zippers. Yeah. And my partner was here at the time and he said it was a very motorcycle nurse, which I thought was perfect. Yeah, she looked amazing. Yeah. <laughs> she had giant round black shades on. Yeah. Yes. Great, great outfit. Yeah, she looked incredible. So she starts to undress and the whole question is, is he going to stand there and let her yeah. get naked in front of him? So the premise is supposed to be, oh, if she can't tell that I'm watching her, how long will I watch her undress, right? And I knew it was a prank. I don't know. I just somehow knew it wasn't real. Mm. And I was like, okay, they're going to reveal to us that she's not. She actually can tell that he's watching her. At this point, we realize that this is like a candid camera style show. 
right? Because they, they kind of come away from the scene and they're asking these contestants these questions like, will he keep watching? And they have to vote. Well, all of a sudden, it, like, zooms in on his face and there's a keyhole. Yes, yes, yes. And it says, Peeping Toms, New York's newest and grooviest TV show. <laughs> and they have this amazing set that's all keyholes, this really Art Deco set, and it's set up kind of like two contestants and a show host, and they're trying to guess what he's going to do next. Exactly. And the categories are, will he stop, look, and listen? Category two is silence is golden. And number three is this way out. And this is like showing on a screen, like the contestants have to guess what he's going to do with those three things. They both think he's going to stop, look, and listen. He's already been watching. She's down to her bra. For a while. Yes. They all say they think he's going to watch, right? He walks away. Silence is golden. Yeah. They pull the people out from the prank. So it's this person who was watching, whose name is Philip. Is mm-hmm. apparently like the victim, right? And then, then they bring out who they say is a model who played the woman who was blind. And they say her name is Danielle. And they both come out and everyone's mm-hmm. like applauding. And they keep showing shots of the audience. And I, I'm like, is this what this? Yeah. I was pretty into this as a as watching people in the audience with their fashion and on their clothes and their hair. Mm. Yeah. So they're talking yeah. and talking. They get prizes. Yeah. Well, I love that they they meet them as the actors. She has a French accent and she says... I studied to be a model, which I thought was very funny. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how you study to be a model, but she's doing it. And she wins cutlery, which I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. that knife's going to come into play. Ominous. I said, a box of knives. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. And then Philip, who is, I guess, the victim of the prank, receives a gift certificate for a date for two. Oh, is that what you think? It was a prank? I thought he was an actor, and they were just setting up the scene for the game oh, show. I thought that he was the victim of a prank of a candid camera type thing, and that oh. she was the actor. Okay. And then they brought him out. Like, I don't know. I can buy that. That's interesting. This whole show thing, I wasn't expecting it to be a fake reveal. So I was like, what are we doing? This is surreal. Now we're on this game show. I didn't know where it was going for (laughs) sure, but I thought for sure something was a setup. I was like, something's a setup. So Phil is a black man. He's the man who was in the locker room. Yeah. And the prize that he wins is a night at Manhattan's famous African room, which I love the look on his face as he's presented this by this white host. And then it pans out to this like all white audience clapping. And he's just kind of rolling his eyes like, great. That sounds like... A really wonderful place for me as a black man to go hang out is a stereotypical African room. Thank you. Yeah, it was. he did ha- definitely have that look on his face when he was given the gift certificate. I had a moment where I was, I was thinking, like, is this their meet cute? Like, are they going to be a couple, you know? Oh, they're super cute. They're, then she, like, asks them out, and she's like, I brought my own cutlery. She asks them out, and it is very cute. They're very cute together. I was like, ooh, yeah, they're going to go on a date. She's wearing, like, a really amazing suit as her outfit. Did you notice that? Yeah, that, a white suit with the little black yeah, tie. Yeah, she looked really cute. Mm-hmm. So they go to dinner. They go to the famous African room. Yeah. There's that first shot that's, like, a close-up on this gorilla in the African room that has this creepily sort of human face. It's like a statue. Pulls out to show the big band, and then they are sitting there. 
She's drunk already. She's so drunk. He's asking her where she's from. Thinks she's French. She says she's actually French-Canadian. I love her accent. One of the things I notice that when she is drunkenly rambling, she's talking about how she's not really into women's lib. Oh, yeah. Uh, I almost like tuned that out. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. It's like she's trying to endear herself to him by saying that, which I feel like is something people probably do. Well, I'm not a feminist, so you don't have to worry about me. You can like me because I'm not a feminist. Don't worry. Makes sense. This came out in 72. I bet that that conversation was happening a lot. I had a moment, too, of thinking about the term women's lib Hmm. and how it kind of bothers me because to me, I feel like people say it and the the way it's perceived is like women's lib is sort of a college major or something. But when you don't abbreviate it, it's women's liberation, which, of course, sounds much more serious and real. But when you say lib, it sounds so kind of flippant, you know? Yeah. Dismissive. I have to note that the person who comes and interrupts them at dinner was someone I definitely noticed in the audience during the Peeping Tom segment because he was seemingly disinterested in reading a book while everyone was clapping. And he was like right in the front row. And then later they did another scan at the end of the Peeping Tom segment and his chair was empty. And I was like, this guy's coming back for sure. (gasps) Look at you. (laughs) I didn't notice that at all. I recognized him. And it turned out he is in a different Brian De Palma movie that I watched. A really strange one, which we'll have to talk about later. But I was like, oh, I, this guy. I'm noting this guy. So yeah, he shows <laughs> up again. And so they're at being interrupted on their date. And Danielle says, this is my ex-husband. And he is like trying to grab her and make her leave with him. And Philip mm-hmm. stands up and is like, she asked you to leave. And then someone who works at the restaurant comes and escorts him out. And it's this whole thing, right? Like he gets dragged out. Yeah, I really appreciated that because they didn't waste any time. She said, he's here, I don't want to see him, and he just took care of it. Yeah. And they just got him out of there, no questions asked. He was out. That kind of led to a tangent for me because, first of all, we opened with that show, Peepin' Toms, and I listen to a fair amount of true crime, and there's a lot of conversation about how the laws have changed since the 70s in particular. Uh about things like stalking and peeping toms. Did you know that stalking wasn't criminalized in the United States until 1990? Really? 1990. And that's because there was some really high-profile cases of actresses getting stalked and then eventually murdered. I think that police just didn't take stalking and peeping toms seriously. They didn't recognize it as one step in an escalation towards usually assault and often murder, was people would start off as peeping toms and stalkers and then build up to these things. So there really wasn't any anything to protect people who were being stalked. Mm. And I was trying to look into this, and I found that date about um, stalking, but I couldn't find a date about peeping toms, but what I did find, which was disturbing, which indicates how often it's being Googled, was a lot of lawyers with websites around laws about peeping toms from the perspective of the peeping tom, like how they can fight against a peeping tom charge. So that was predominantly what I found, which was kind of obviously a bummer. But I also found this random fact that... uh, The term Peeping Tom supposedly originated with Lady Godiva, who supposedly rode down the streets of England naked in protest of high taxes, and she asked the townspeople to close their eyes or turn away and not look at her naked body, but one man, 
a tailor, I'm not sure why that's relevant, couldn't help but look, and he became known as Peeping Tom. I don't know if that's true. It was on one of these lawyers' websites, but... Amazing. The world's first Peeping Tom. Never knew. (laughs) But yeah, so considering all of that, like how many horrible stories I've heard about this era and people not being taken seriously when they're trying to get people to stop stalking them, I really appreciated how quickly they got his ass out of that club. They got him out. Yeah. Danielle is saying, like, let's go to my apartment. And Philip is is interested. But yeah, they go on the ferry. And there was a point where I was like, gosh, she's so drunk. And he's not like, this is almost like similar to that dilemma at the beginning where it's like, Uh should I stop her? Because she's undressing and isn't aware of me. And I'm like, should he stop? I mean, he's, is he going to have that dilemma again? Is that why we saw it the first time? That he's going to realize she needs to cool it with the date because she's clearly too drunk to for it to be consensual? I was noticing that too. I was getting a little bit uncomfortable with how drunk she was and he was driving and he obviously wasn't. I was getting uncomfortable. So then they get to her apartment and Emil has continued to follow them to the apartment. He comes up with a way to get rid of him. He goes out and he moves his car. He does this whole thing. He sneaks back in. Emil buys it and leaves. So, but first though... When they're in the apartment, she starts stripping off her clothes as she's walking away from him. And it's, again, kind of mirroring that TV show, The Peeping Toms, because he's just sort of standing and watching her silently as she's stripping. And then he goes around and he, like, closes all the blinds in her apartment. And as he does that, he notices across the courtyard a woman who, to me, looked very similar. And I'm always, like, looking for the twin ever since that second embryo showed up. I'm like, where's that twin going to be? Who's the twin? Where's Where's that twin? So I noticed this dark haired woman in this window. So he has like another little like peeping Tom moment right there. Yeah, he does. He clocks her across the way and is like, I see this lady. Yeah. And then continues to close the blind. And then he sees Emil. Creep stash Emil. Who, can I just take a moment to say that this actor is very well cast as a creep? Because he's got this slick back hair. I don't know. He he never blinks. (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't seem to blink. I thought he was like a very effective creep. Philip comes up with a plan to ditch Emil. Which is like, I'm going to go move my car, and he'll think I left. And it works. Emil thinks he left, so he leaves. Then he comes back. At this point, Danielle seems to be less drunk. When he comes back in, he makes a note to bring in her box of knives. Yes, yes. I keep thinking about those knives. So they end up having uh, sex on the couch. They They get frisky. So right here I have a interior design appreciation shot and costume appreciation shot. Oh yeah, I want to hear it. Her apartment, I immediately noticed how white it was. All the walls and all the furniture are white, which struck me as being very institutional-like, which, as we see later, is relevant. But all of her lampshades are all square And all of the other furniture she has is square, and it's all these chrome and glass shelves that have nothing on them yet. And there's a bunch of cardboard boxes, like she just moved in. But the room is all white and chrome, and she is laying back on this white textured couch in this dusty pink, almost mauve satin robe. So I was really enjoying all of the shiny and the textures in this scene. Yeah, and her hair looks incredible. Always. So she just kind of like... Pops her robe open is like, see these titties? Yeah. And, uh, and then it's on. <laughs> she does, yeah, immediately. She's like, check it out. So, yeah, they get on the couch. They're having s- some sexy times on this couch, mm-hmm. which I was like, it's funny that they don't leave the living room. 
Like, there's clear, there seems to be a bedroom, but they don't go to it. And they're on this pretty small mm-hmm. couch. He seems too tall for it. And then, I mean, <laughs> this is a major good scar reveal. Yeah. He, we, he starts to put his hand up her robe, and her robe falls away to reveal a pretty big scar. Like, a significant scar. All the way up her side. Which I immediately was like, oh, that's the Siamese twin separation scar right there. Because yeah. it was on her hip. Yeah. And it's also that great 70s makeup, which looks so spackled on, you know? It's like doesn't quite match the skin tone. <laughs> yeah, it's a very strange, like, they made it separately and then kind of try to glue it on her skin or something, you know? It looks like it could fall off at any second. It looks like oatmeal. I wonder if at the time people were like, ooh, realistic, you know, where now it just kind of looks like something you could buy at the Halloween store and, like, glue on for a costume. Like one of those latex head wounds that you can, like, <laughs> use spirit gum to put on your face. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we see that, right? We're getting the idea that something's going on here. Oh, and the music is crazy. The music on the Scar is like... Yeah, we got, like, Scar has its own soundtrack. (laughs) Scar track. So she wakes up the next morning, and she... It sounds like either she has a bad hangover or she's still having sex. It's really interesting noises. Yeah, there's some whimpering happening. Whimpering, and I can't tell what's happening. And then it turns out that the ca- the couch was a pull-out sofa, right? So they en- ended up pulling out the sofa and sleeping on the couch. She seems like she's in pain. They have this whole setup where there's two pills on the sink ledge, and I'm like, oh, does it like, look like they're about to tip over into the sink, these pills? Can I also say that that grossed me out so bad? Sinks are gross. Yeah. I don't want sinks anything that goes in my mouth sitting directly on a sink. Yeah, it's kind of nasty. And there are these bright red pills. He wakes up to the sound of her in an argument. You hear two voices, right? And then you see this door open. Mm -hmm. And this is like such an incredible shot. You see the shadow of two people, but not the second person on the back of this bedroom door that opens and closes. It's just a very cool shot. Mm -hmm. The indication is someone's in there, right? But we don't see them. But this argument wakes Philip up. And he gets up and he gets dressed in the bathroom. And he's kind of listening to this, like, this major fight. When he gets up, he has some scratches on his back, so you know... Yes, he does. He has some big scratches on his back. She's a little dangerous. Yeah, I thought those look like they hurt. (laughs) While he's getting dressed, which is this the second time we've seen him with those giant boxers that he's, like, stuffing into his (laughs) pants. Giant boxers that look like a diaper. And he unwittingly (laughs) knocks the pills down the drain, which is also feels ominous, right? You're like, "Uh uh-oh. That, to me, was him not paying heed to like all the red flags she was throwing up they're on this first date they just met it's a one night stand she's doing way too much crying for someone she's known for one day (laughs) and i would be like backing away slowly your ex-husband's clearly still in the picture there's a lot of things here that probably philip maybe should have paid more attention to so then she's like telling him about her sister is mad because her sister is jealous they're twins and it's their birthday And he offers to leave so they can spend time together. And she says, no, I want to spend it with you. And then she asked him to go get a prescription for her to get some more of the pills, which I was like, she's running this poor guy ragged. Like now he like he already got rid of the ex. Now he's got to go pick up some pills for her. He's walking and he sees a bakery Mm -hmm. and he stops and goes (laughs) in to buy a birthday cake, which I was like, oh, that's a really nice gesture. Yeah, this guy has been a total sweetie this whole time. I was into him. I was looking forward to him sticking around. I thought, you know, maybe this is where her life turns around. She gets a nice boyfriend. Yeah, he goes in. He's like, can you make sure the birthday cake says happy birthday, Dominique and Danielle? 
which like now he's thinking of her sister, which is so considerate. Well, so considerate. You know, he didn't even know yeah. she had a sister. In the morning, he just hears them arguing. I'm like, oh, he's so nice. So while this is happening, right, mm-hmm. we are getting starting to get this incredible back and forth of Danielle, who's now having some sort of severe crisis because she hasn't had enough pills or... She realizes the pills are gone. She starts writhing around on the bathroom floor in pain. And it just is going back and forth between like this very sort of agonizing, slow process of having the cake decorated with their names and then her writhing around on the ground. (laughs) So I loved this as a device. I thought it was so clever and fun to watch because... He goes into this bakery, which, first of all, one of the sassy bakery ladies was Olympia Dukakis, who... I thought she looked familiar. Oh, my God. I have a real soft spot, because when we were kids, Moonstruck was one of the only VHS tapes that we had, and I watched it over and over again, and she plays Cher's mom, and she's amazing in that movie. So I I was like... (gasps) Olympia! And then she doesn't really have any scream time after that, but she's great. Yeah. But basically, the women there are like, we're not the cake decorators. But he's like, you can do it. And so, there's a scene of a close-up of this pink frosting roses cake, like typical gross birthday cake. And this hand with red nails slowly in like child's writing, writing their name with this twinkly music. And then cut to Danielle writhing on the floor because she's having some sort of episode and cut back to this pink cake. And this is why you texted me this screenshot from this as we were both watching it because we were both freaking out. I was like, the cake and the writing and how slow (laughs) it is and just the way it looks. I loved it. And then he grabs her hand and helps her write it because she's struggling. Incredible. That made me laugh so hard when his little hand just came in and just rested on her hand because I was like, that's so inappropriate. How is he that close to her? (laughs) The cake montage I really loved. But in the meantime, Danielle called Emile for help because she was suffering, right? Oh, I missed that. Okay. She called her ex-husband for help. And so Philip returns, but Emile is like already there. He like sees him come back and... There's this whole lead up. So Philip has the cake. He goes to the box of knives. He's being a sweetheart. He tucks the biggest kitchen knife ever (laughs) under the cake so he can present it. He sees that she's gone back to bed in the sofa bed, right? And he goes into the kitchen. But he lights all these candles and puts them on the cake. And you're just like, something's not going to, this is starting to get, something's not right. Something's not right. (sighs) As soon as he starts walking towards her with that cake with the the handle of the knife. Pointing toward towards her. It's so, it's so strange. I like, knew what was going to happen. Like, it's sweet to have her blow out the candles in bed, but then he he thinks she's going to use this massive knife to, like, then serve herself a piece of cake, like, <laughs> while she's, like, wrapped up in the sheets. <laughs> but, yeah, so it's all, like, this idea that he's being romantic. And then the next thing we know, this fucking giant large knife, the woman reaches out and grabs it and pulls it back and starts repeatedly stabbing the sheets fall off of her she's wearing a different outfit her hair is all wild she looks all greasy and it turns out to be not danielle well it appears it appears right it appears not to be danielle it appears to be dominique the sister i knew this was coming and i still jumped when she stabbed him because it was a really good shot of her like <gasps> lunging at the camera with this knife it was a really good shot and i did think i know that they're going to do something with this whole twin thing but it really still looked like it was her in the bed yeah you only just saw a little bit of her hair sort of like 
coming out mm-hmm. from the bed. It was very well hidden, but she does, she jumps out like she was on a spring, like she was ready. <laughs> yeah. And she goes for the crotch. This is the first time we see a crotch stab, by the way. Yeah. Make yeah. note, people. Make note. There's a second crotch stab in this movie. She does not like crotches. Does not like crotches. Totally. Yeah. I just realized <laughs> that definitely ties into stuff later. Poor Philip, who was trying to be so sweet, is dragging himself away from her. And there's all like this 70s, like bright orange, red blood everywhere. It's all over his suit. It's like yeah. all over the ground. He drags himself over to the window where he clocked that woman, which I thought was really smart. Mm-hmm. He knew he probably couldn't get himself out of the apartment. So he drags himself to the window instead and starts using his bloody hand on the window to get her attention. Uh-huh. So we see all this stabbing again in silhouette, which... I appreciated. She does stab him in the mouth, which was pretty brutal. Oh, yeah. Again, that's in silhouette. But as he drags himself over to this window, she leaves, I think. She's gone. And then starts this amazing split screen, which I tried to find information about what the longest split screen was in a movie, because this split screen goes on forever, and I love it. I feel like it's used really effectively. So now it's a split screen of the woman that he saw out the window earlier... Her point of view is seeing him through the window and her, the other side, yeah, looking out the window towards her. So here's where we meet Grace Collier, who is played by, what her is her name? Her name is Jennifer Salt, the actress. Later, I thought, this is definitely the best sequence of the entire movie. The split screen? Like, this made the movie, in my opinion. The second that we see her seeing him and it splits and we see both him, like, realizing he's getting her attention and her seeing him from her apartment. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think I've ever witnessed a split screen that lasted this long. It lasts so it long. It is so good. And it's great. it immediately uses all these devices to tell us who Jennifer Salt... Well, I keep saying Jennifer Salt. Her name, The character's <laughs> name is Grace. It immediately uses it as a device to quickly tell us who she is. Yeah. This is happening on the left-hand side of the screen. It's showing all these things she's written, including like articles about police brutality and things like that. As we can hear her calling the police, and yeah. the last title is Why We Call Them Pigs, which I loved. There's so much happening. I tried to write down kind of like what I remembered, mm-hmm. but I was also very into it. She tries to go over to the building, and it kind of seems like she's gotten to the apartment. You see the, a, a door opening for her. She's like gone to the wrong apartment, and all this is happening in split screen. It's so wild. It's very tense. It's good. Danielle ends up opening the door for her ex-husband instead of the witness of the murder. And so then the husband comes in and they very quickly start cleaning, which I thought was interesting because I'm like, why are they assuming that someone's like coming? Yeah, I didn't really understand that. But I also noticed that he was disturbingly efficient at cleaning up a crime scene. So it made me wonder if he has had to cover for her before. Yeah, because he did start cleaning up the blood in such an efficient way. He's like pouring down what, like some kind of powder to soak it up and then wiping it up. And they immediately he was prepared for this. A roll poor Philip's body up in the sofa bed, which made me sad. I also thought there's a really good chance they actually made that actor do that because they probably didn't have effective fake bodies back in the day. And I, yeah. it kind of made me freak out a little bit. <laughs> it was terrifying. I thought that Note was to self, so scary. Never roll Dee Dee in a sofa. Bed. Never roll me in a sleeper <laughs> sofa, please. But yeah, okay. so um, cops arrive pretty quickly. I mean, the sequence is supposed to be happening kind of in real time. Cops are immediately there. Yeah. But then they waste so much time talking to her in the split screen. We're seeing all this cleaning happening so fast. And she's down in the lobby of the building 
trying to make them come up and actually take the time to investigate what she is reporting as being a murder that she witnessed. And they obviously don't like her. They know who she is and they know that she's a journalist who doesn't like cops. And so they're just kind of, you know, giving her shit and gaslighting her and not really listening to her. And it's just another example of cops being inept because of sexism and racism because she describes the victim as being a black man and one of the police says, these people are always stabbing each other. Yeah. You know, so they're not taking her seriously. They're not taking this crime seriously at all. Right. And then they have this history of knowing her and thinking she is stirring like shit up when really she's exposing Mm -hmm. them being shitty cops. And yeah, so there's a lot of time wasted because of this and so much is being cleaned up in the meantime. Yeah, they stuff the body in the sleeper sofa, they tuck him in, they put the cushions back on, and this was, like, all happening in dual angles. It's incredible. I, when they get into the apartment, okay, the cops show up, right? They get into the apartment, she lets them in. Before they come in, though, this is where the split screen ends, right? So when they get to her door. But one of the shots that I really appreciated with the split screen was actually a double split. Because... Danielle was standing in her bathroom and Emil has told her to put on makeup so she seems normal because they seem convinced that someone's going to show up in the apartment. I know, right? They seem convinced someone's showing up. I don't know why. I don't. Yeah, I don't know know? why. Smart, I guess, if you're going to murder someone, just get to work right away. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so she's like in the mirror putting on makeup and the the split in the mirror because it's a bathroom cabinet is right over her face. Mm. So her face is broken in two and the screen is still broken in two. So... I loved that double split. That was very cool. And then I also appreciated when we got to the apartment, the last bit of the split screen was actually point of view of Grace and the police looking in the door and then also POV from inside her apartment just behind her looking at them. So I thought it was a really interesting choice to keep that a split screen, even though now we're all in the same place. Yeah. You know, because it's telling you about her. Dual personality, of course. I love it. Cops arrive with the neighbor, Grace, the witness. And then Danielle opens the door, is immediately playing it cool like nothing happened. The split screen ends. But I do love that last split screen because it had to have been one take. It was seamless. They had to have had a camera on both sides of them, but just enough obscured from seat filming itself. Had to have been the same shot. It was incredible. And then it goes back to a single screen. Grace, the witness like hops to and starts looking (laughs) through the apartment. She's convinced she's going to see something. And the cops and Danielle are touring through the apartment while Grace is sort of like looking at every little thing. Like, I don't trust her. I know she did something. I saw it happen. Oh, at this point, I have to tell you, I wrote down in my journal. I said, there's absolutely no way there's a twin. (laughs) I already knew. I figured it out at that point. Yeah. There's no twin. I just figured it, I was like, I know there's no twin. This is going to be one of those things where the twin is not there and Danielle has somehow, is got a Jekyll and Hyde thing going on. I just knew it. I just knew it. So. Well, you know, she's a model (laughs) and an actress. She's studying to be both a model and an actress. So she starts off playing it really tough with the police and that doesn't work. She gets real like French and flirty. That's when I was thinking French people can really get away with whatever the hell they want here because that accent is just irresistible to us. (laughs) No one cares about the American accent, but French, they can do whatever. She's too cute. She sounds too cute. Mm -hmm. As they're walking through the living room, we see a pan of the back of the sofa from the camera's point of view and there's a big blood stain. So I'm like, you're on edge because you're like, they might see the blood. Yeah. And then the other thing I remember is that she had two sets of every outfit in her closet. 
and they asked her about it and she said it was because she needed to have two sets of clothes for all the commercials that she shoots. Quick thinking. They show her uh, Grace rooting through her fridge as if there's going to be a clue in there. And so there's like this big steak in like a very thin <laughs> coat of plastic like that I thought yeah. was really funny. And then a tab soda, which really got my brain going because my coworkers lately at work have been talking about tab. <laughs> it's really hard to find and people buy it online for like ex- extremely expensive like um, <laughs> it's so expensive to buy it i was just laughing because like 70s food looks so unappetizing everything just looks so processed and like square and red and yeah, yellow that weird steak and also she's supposed to be a model and so she doesn't even have any vegetables in her fridge it's just like this big weird square pack of meat <laughs> and a tab, <laughs> and tab. yeah <laughs> grace immediately is not taking any bullshit, and she knows exactly that they can see each other from their windows, and Danielle is trying to pull the hysterical woman thing on Grace, which I was like, I can't believe you would do that to another woman. She was like, I live alone too, and sometimes I get scared and imagine things too. Grace is not having it. She's like, oh, no, I saw you, I saw the guy die. I'm gonna give this movie one cat fight, like, just one little cat claw. Because there was this little moment of uh, of cattiness. And then also when Danielle says, I'm a model, sometimes an actress. And Grace says, you certainly are. I know. Grace got her. Grace got her. Well, but she's in the fridge and she finds... The cake. The cake. Yep. With the two names. And she gets so excited that she pulls the cake out of the fridge. And what? slips and drops the cake and ruins the frosting so nobody can read no it. No can tell that there were two names. She flipped it upside down on the cop's shoe, which was apparently the final straw for him. <laughs> can can we pause to talk about her style? Can we just spend a moment on Grace here? Yeah. She's a super babe. I can picture her walking around now looking exactly the same. A thousand percent her fashion mullet slash... major shag haircut is absolutely something i could see someone walking around with that haircut right now yeah she's gorgeous little gold hoops but she's wearing this incredible i don't know what it is like a house dress or nightgown it goes from her neck all the way to the floor and it has these big billowy sleeves that are cinched at the wrist but it's sheer yeah and red and white patterned of something it's so long i wondered if she slipped on that when she drops the cake it was like this weird slapstick moment it was very slapsticky whoa the cake falls (laughs) (laughs) but she's seen the cake box in the trash so she knows which bakery it came from and she's very sharp so she does remember all these details and she doesn't take any shit she knows what she saw they basically usher her outside and the policeman is like look i'm gonna find something to book you on i don't know what yet but I'm going to get you. The cops are not on her side. They don't believe her. They want to get her for something. Cops are dicks. They are gaslighting her and then they leave, right? And then the next thing we know, this other woman's coming out of the building and is like, we have, we're supposed to be hanging out together. And it turns out to be her mother. I figured it out when she was like, when are you going to get married? You're wasting your time. (laughs) You're not getting married, right? And like a little bit later, we find out she's only 25, and we're like, wow, her mother made such a huge deal. Like, you know, so-and-so got married to a doctor. I mean, he's a vet, but, you know, a doctor for animals. I laughed really hard at that. Mom is not taking her career seriously at all. No. This is like a pretty typical, like, upper-class, white mom, conservative mom relationship, disapproving mm-hmm. of her daughter. And then she sort of starts 
talking about this new hospital that's coming, and you're like, oh, this is obviously important, this detail. A quote-unquote experimental madhouse. Yes, quote-unquote, right? And you're like, okay, what's <laughs> This is a tangent alert. I think I could live on Staten Island. <laughs> <laughs> I think I could live there. What about this scene made you think that? Was it the experimental madhouse in the neighborhood? No, that, you know, they're walking around, right? And this is all happening on Staten Island. And at some point, it kind of looks like they're in San Francisco, you know? They have, like, these Mm -hmm. views of the water everywhere. It's right next to Manhattan. It's hilly. I noticed that, too. It's really pretty. Yeah, they're out, like, walking around in the daytime, right? And I was like, it's pretty. Then they're walking down this little street. Turns out to be the street where the bakery is. But you see them from inside of the bakery through the windows like they're out in the street and you see grace as she's walking and kind of listening to her mom and kind of tuning her out you see her look into the windows of the bakery from inside you see it from like the inside perspective and it was such a cool shot it showed like the whole street behind her it had all these like tons of businesses all crammed in next to each other and yeah in my head i was like i could live in staten island i like it here (laughs) So Dee Dee's going to be looking up Staten Island homes on Zillow this week. <laughs> so yeah, they go into the bakery. She's got all the questions. They fill her in about uh, Phil coming in to get She's the cake. She's sharp, our grace. She's we, quick. We get another glimpse of Dukakis, who I thought maybe she was going to have a bigger part after this, but no. This is our last time seeing Dear Olympia. So yeah, she gets some information from the baker. She's very abrupt and her mom is trying to charm them. And her mom asks her, why are you acting so weird? Are you on diet pills again? I knew you were going to notice the diet pills thing because that made me cackle. (laughs) Are you on diet pills again? I mean, there's so many themes in here about women and mental health. Oh, yeah. Hysteria. I mean, everybody knows that everybody was, especially women, were heavily medicated in this era of time. Okay, so she separates from her mom and now she's on a payphone and she's trying to pitch the story because she's trying to get someone to pay she attention. She calls the editor because she's, she's certain that Danielle's hiding this murder that she witnessed, right? So she calls her editor and she's like, the police are ignoring this specifically because they're racist and they're not taking it seriously. Yeah, it's a white woman who killed a black and, man. And they're not listening, so I need help because I think there's something here. So then she hires this private investigator. Larch is the character's name, right? Yeah. And this actor is like one of those guys that's in everything. I didn't look him up, but... Larch shows up. I mean, this seems like it's all happening in one day. Things are moving very fast. Larch gets up into the apartment. But before this happens, okay, I have to ta- I have to say, Larch says he went to the Brooklyn Institute of Modern Investigation. Yeah. <laughs> And of course I Googled it. It's fake. It's only referred to ever on the internet as coming from this movie. Uh-huh. Awesome. Yeah, well, they have a whole scene in the van where they're basically arguing about how to go about investigating because she's a journalist and he's a private eye and he does not take kindly to her having any opinions about how he should do things. And so he basically is telling her to right. shut up and stay in the van. And then he he has like a fake... Um, it's like an Acme utility van or something, really. So he uses this guys to get into Danielle's apartment. And meanwhile, Grace is across the way from her apartment looking across with binoculars at him. And I I I had to laugh about this yes. because, you know, they had this like argument in the van and then he wastes all this time going to the window and giving her like snarky hand signals to be like, Ugh, nothing here. Oh. 
Ugh, I knew you were wrong. There's nothing going on yeah, here. Yeah, I wrote LARGE in all caps because at this point I was annoyed. LARGE <laughs> spends a lot of time going from window to window, shrugging <laughs> and overacting. LARGE is really being an, an asshole and wasting a lot of time. At this point, though, we realize that the, Danielle and Emil are on their way back up. So Emil shows up with another man and... They proceed to take away the couch, which, as we know, the body is in the couch. And Larch, at some point, says that he bumped into it and it didn't budge and he tried to, like, push it. And he realized it was so heavy that it was too heavy to be a normal couch. He figured it out. We see a moving van arrive. And there's this pretext, I suppose, that Emil told them they were moving the couch. So the couch gets hauled out by movers into a moving van. They start following in a van. Larch is saying he wants to know who's on the other side to pick up this couch. So I thought that was interesting that he assumed that it was going to be somebody of interest taking the couch instead of just they're bringing it to a dump or something. Yeah. But he also, from her apartment, grabs a file that turns out to be about the Blanchion twins, mm -hmm. which is Dominique and Danielle. Yes. So there's been an article written about them. Yes. So Larch continues following this van with a couch in it, and he tells Grace to stay home. But she has this file, so of course she's not going to sit around at home. So she immediately goes to, looks like Life magazine, to ask them about these twins that they wrote this article about. This reporter at Life magazine knows about the file and says, oh yeah, when we aired that piece, it got a lot of attention. And the article is about the Loisel Institute and the Blanchion twins, which apparently are Canada's first conjoined twins, is, the, is what it says in the file or what it says in the article. This reporter brings Grace to the media room, which I was like, old tech alert. I loved the old me the, uh, the media room was incredible. The built in with all the little screens. That was yeah. so cool. So, OK, here's our big reveal. The reporter tells Grace that the twins, that these Blanchion twins, who we are, are clearly seeing is Dominique and Danielle, that they were only recently separated and that Dominique died during the operation. <gasps> dun, dun, to which dun. I wrote down, I fucking knew it, in all caps. Duh, duh, duh. <laughs> <laughs> One of the twins died. And then I was like, I've seen this trope so many times. That I had to Google it, and I have a really funny screenshot that I have to s share with you. This The Google search is dead twin trope, 70s. Evil twin trope is used in popular culture. The other article was angsty surviving twin, TV tropes. Evil twin, all tropes, wiki. I was screeching at that point. <laughs> the reveal was true. Well, I was also looking up Folly Adu. Have you heard no. of this? Madness for Two. Oh. I actually recently listened to a podcast about these, oh, I think that they may have been Belgian twins that had this very public mental breakdown. And they were older. I think this happened in the 2000s, so a lot of it was caught on those circuit cameras. The way they think it works is that one family member will start to like believe in a delusion and then all the other family members will sort of join in. So it's not always two people. But anyways, these twins had this like meltdown in the middle of the street and then one of them ended up stabbing somebody and that's like a really famous case. But there are instances of entire families getting caught up in one of their sort of psychological delusions and um, <laughs> I looked it up and I found this medical journal and one of the lines said, 
an extensive review of literature reveals cases of folie à trois, folie à quatre, folie à family, all family members, and even a case involving a dog. <laughs> so I couldn't find any more information about this dog going along with the family psychosis, but uh, if anyone has any information about this, I want to know. I need, I absolutely need more information. <laughs> I need to know what the dog had to do. <laughs> oh my god. How was this dog involved? Well, this is a huge point in the movie that the movie shifts gears, because at this point, Grace's assumption that something is happening is kind of validated. She's got this file she learns really specific information about Danielle, who she's suspicious of. Which is revealed to her because they watch basically a documentary. So we, as the viewers, are watching this in the full screen, this black and white documentary about these twins. Which I thought that was funny. Like a little history lesson on Siamese twins in the middle of this movie. You see a picture <laughs> of Emil, who's supposed to be the ex-husband, and realize he was the doctor. He so was you're like, a doctor. Oh, okay, so it's her doctor, mm -hmm. not her husband. What? Maybe I don't know. I can't tell yet. Ah! And then um, Grace is like, "I gotta know more." So I'm gonna go to the hospital, the new hospital that her mom had told her about earlier. Conveniently, Conveniently. told her about, and she shows up, and Danielle has been taken here by this doctor who maybe is also her ex-husband, but we know is definitely the doctor at this point. And by Emil. And she is mm -hmm. spying on them through a window, and it's clear that Danielle is under some distress. But she's just sort of watching them through this open window. And then one of the best things I think I maybe happened in the second half of the movie happens right here. She gets caught spying by this gardener who's outside working at night. <laughs> I laughed so hard at this and part. Snapping his little <laughs> shears right behind her, and it's like pitch dark, and she turns around and she asks. What are you doing? She's like, what are like, you doing? He's working at night, right? And that full voice conversation right outside of the window that she's spying in, by the way. And he <laughs> says, I have my work to do. And he's just staring at her with these shears. So earlier in the car when the mom was talking about this very advanced experimental madhouse, her words, not mine, she's saying, they let them walk around just like real people. That's her words. So I realize that this is one of the patients that is doing oh something. i didn't catch that he was a patient okay that makes sense i was like why is the gardener working at night she says you live here and he says so they tell me but i love that she's like what are you doing because that was a perfect reaction to you know somebody night gardening <laughs> i have my work to do <laughs> yeah so but and also they're having this like very loud conversation outside of the window she was just spying through so i'm like uh you're gonna get caught then she enters the hospital to make a call and I love movies that are pre-cell phone, where it's like the call has to be like, I have to get to a phone and not just like pull one out of my pocket. So she needs to call someone because she is... She's calling the police. I'm surprised at how often she is calling the police, considering that she doesn't trust police and she knows how inept they are. But she keeps calling them and expecting them to yes. show up. So she goes to call them, but she's interrupted by my second favorite part of this sequence. So we meet the night gardener. <laughs> then we meet our hypochondriac. Uh, patient who, as soon as she picks up the phone, the woman's like, you have germs and germs pass through phones. And she's got like this disinfecting spray. And I had took a screenshot. I had to go find her. Yeah, oh. she was great. She was my favorite like background mm -hmm. character that I wanted to spend a little bit more she, time with. She was incredible. She has yeah. just an Oscar worthy meltdown yes. about the phone. Did you know that the germs can come through the wires? I never call and I never answer. 
It's a good way to get sick. Very, very sick. That's how I got so sick. Someone called me on the telephone. This woman, this hypochondriac, is like me during COVID. <laughs> I'm wiping down all the groceries. Gave me COVID through Zoom. I don't know. <laughs> I laughed so hard. I completely related to her hysteria around somebody calling her on the telephone. So, <laughs> so an orderly comes around and starts talking to the hypochondriac. And then is talking to Grace, the reporter, about the condition that this woman has. And as this is happening, Grace is trying to say, like, but I really do need to make this call. And then fucking Emil, the doctor, waltzes in and mm -hmm. tells the orderly. Grace gets confused. She thinks she needs to use the phone. And the orderly very quickly just assumes the doctor is right. And she's actually a patient. And I was like, oh, here we go. Here we fucking go. They're going to force her to stay at the hospital. And then this whole thing is going to happen. I really kind of love movies that are set in mental institutions, and I think that you said that you are freaked well, out. But I think that's why I like them. They're effectively scary because... I think specifically being a woman, people could just put you in a mental institution if they didn't like the things that you were saying or thinking back in the day. And here's this moment where her mistaken identity... And I think that's why it pisses me off. But it's not like I don't like it. I think it pisses me off because it feels so realistic. Yeah, but I think it's so effective. And I am also like really fascinated by the weird rules that they have in mental institutions in movies. Yeah. Anyway, so I was feeling this. So Emil takes her into another room, and he starts hypnotizing her. Bad psychology alert, because hypnosis in the 70s... I think they basically have determined that hypnosis now is useful as a way to kind of help people process their habits, but that the information you get from people under hypnosis is not reliable. Like, a lot of the stuff right. in the 70s around, like, the satanic panic came from them using hypnosis and therapy with people, basically putting ideas in people's heads. <laughs> yeah, as a plot device, it's often used to be like, we made this person different. It's such a movie trope. When I did look up hypnosis therapy, because I was trying to find some information... Yes. There's a lot of people with really great names uh, involved <laughs> in the history of hypnosis, and I just wanted to share a couple. People can look this up on their own. Oh, One love it. is Valentine Great Rakes, and another pillar of hypnosis is Father Maximilian Hell. Ooh, Father Hell! That was just sort of fun. I like that. Grace is sedated, right? And he's hovering over her, and he's hypnotizing her, and he does not blink, I yeah. swear, for about two minutes in this scene. And he's hypnotizing her to say, you're only going to remember what I right. tell you. And then he starts to reveal, basically, the whole background of these twins. Because that's what we do in movies. We use hypnosis to further the plot. And he makes her repeat, there was no body because there was no murder. And again, we see the scar. He pulls up the robe and we see Danielle's scar because Danielle's laying next to her. And Grace sort of reaches out a shaky hand to, like, touch the scar, but can't bring herself to do it. Yes. This Halloween store scar. This next sequence was pretty effective storytelling as well, because what we then see are these sort of flashbacks or like a dream of everything that's happened to the twins. But rather than it being the actress who plays Danielle being split screened and shown twice as her twin, 
they show the con- conjoined twin as being Grace, and Grace is sort of reacting to everything that's happening, which I thought was pretty interesting as far as having the audience... It's yeah. like Grace and us as the audience are bearing witness to the real true story of the twins um, by having Grace be the other twin. And mm. th- and that probably, mm-hmm. you know, they would have had to do all these different camera tricks to have the actress Margot Kidder be both conjoined twins. But instead they had Jennifer Salt as Grace, you know, and I thought that was pretty clever. Grace is very much acting as if she is seeing all this happening in front of her in the flashbacks and is like reacting quite a bit. I thought she was kind of acting like Dominique. She seemed like she was acting kind of disturbed. And Dominique was supposed to be the more disturbed twin. Yeah, she's like watching it as if she's never seen this before. So she's not acting like Dominique to me. To me, she felt like she was Grace, but she was watching all this happening, unfolding. I read it kind of as a dream sequence because of how surreal it was that she was sort of imagining herself in Mm. Dominique's place. Because they have this awesome interaction with the other patients in the hospital, kind of dancing around them. There's another set of twins. There's a sort of gallery scene. That was a really cool sequence. There was this amazing trio of guys doing a little like soft shoe routine, which I thought was really cool and spooky that was an amazing very effective dream scene that is like the kind of dream that you might have if you were trying to explain later very Mm -hmm. surreal but i thought that was cool yeah so they explain that emile and danielle have been having an affair and they keep sedating dominique so that they can have sex which they seemingly do in plain sight of the other staff because there's windows everywhere and people taking notes unethical is what i wrote down Yeah, it's very questionable and nobody seems to be putting a stop to this. So as he's sort of talking in Danielle's ear, like triggering this memory, he's roping her breasts the whole time, which was really interesting and disturbing. And she's talking about how she became pregnant. Danielle became pregnant and Dominique was angry, kind of understandably, because they're basically sedating her so they can have this sexual relationship. Can I ask you if they're conjoined? How much of her sedation would be carried through in the bloodstream of Danielle? And like right. for some reason that was where I my just yeah. you know disbelief was kept hitting this part of like the sedation not affecting both of them. But anyway, I don't know. <laughs> That's a really good point. That is some bad science right there. Well, they go into that Dominique tries to stab her with some garden shears to try to get rid of the baby. Yes. And here's where it gets really bad medicine. Then they're like, in order to save the baby, we have to separate you. They've shown the way that they're attached as being essentially just on their hip, like on the outside of their hip. They don't share legs or anything. Their torsos aren't connected. It's just on the hip where the scar is. And they're actually kind of facing away from each other. So it does not appear to me as if they share any organs, but they might share a circulatory system. Like, like some said, bloodstream for the skin station. tissue, obviously. Something's connected. I don't know. So somehow in this decision they've made to separate them to save this child, Dominique ends up dying. Do they just like not try to close her wound and just let her bleed out on the table? I'm not sure how surgery like this really becomes lethal. It makes you wonder if the doctor let her die, you know? Yeah. It kind of seems like that to me. And in the dream scenario that... Grace is seeing this all through 
the private detective Joe hands this giant meat cleaver to Dr. Emil, and he raises it up to separate them and, like, slams it down. We're then led to believe that the guilt of having Dominique die makes it so that when Danielle now has sex with anyone, she disassociates because she somehow associates this need for the surgery because she had a romantic relationship. Then she disassociates and sort of essentially becomes Dominique out of some sort of guilt. Earlier when they show the documentary about them, one of the doctors is saying that everyone thinks of Dominique as being the disturbed twin, but really Danielle, who seems so sweet and so responsive, is only able to be so because of her sister. So there's a lot of bad psychology going on here. Bad psychology. Oh, they have to be opposites. And now that there's only one, she has to take on her sister's attributes. Whenever she becomes Dominique, it's like clearly Margot Kidder, but they make her hair all fussed up. And then when she goes Uh back to being Danielle, her hair looks all nice again. She's got this kind of like Ally Sheedy from The Breakfast Club, like hair will (laughs) pop out. And then it goes back to being all nice when it's Danielle. And I just, every time they would show her as Dominique with her hair, just sort of. Yeah, that made me laugh too, because she's just like smoothing her hair out real fast. At some point during this whole reveal, Emile is like, I'm going to interview you while you're Dominique so I can get the whole story. He's like holding the murder weapon in her face and trying to get her to realize that she killed a man as quote unquote Dominique. And... Dominique grabs a scalpel and... Goes for the crotch. Yes. In my head, I'm like, why is this the second time someone is waving this giant kitchen knife in front of Dominique, like giving Mm -hmm. her this chance to use it? But rather than grab it and use it, she grabs a scalpel and she stabs Emile right in the crotch. So this is our second crotch stab. She only gets a couple swipes in with that scalpel. I didn't think it was a lethal wound unless she hit an artery. I don't know. But... There was a scene, and I noticed that you saved a screen grab of this, too. As he's, I guess, dying from this wound, he kind of grabs onto her back, and they're, like, hunched over in this twisted grapple, and it was really creepy, and they look like this sort of deformed, conjoined monster, which was cool, kind of Siamese twins. That was cool. It looked like, partially looked like an attack and a morphing of their bodies and some sort of Mm -hmm. possession. Yeah, it was interesting. And then they land on Grace, who's laying on this medical cot. And as the Emil is dying, Danielle comes to and realizes what's happened. And they're both laying on top of Grace, bleeding. And Grace wakes up and has another epic freak out, which I also really appreciated. <laughs> and things do move pretty fast from here, in my opinion. I was like, yeah. they are wrapping this up. The cops arrive. They ask Danielle about her sister, and she's like, oh, my sister's dead. And then they arrest her, seemingly with really no further argument. They just arrest her for murdering Emile. And then they start to interrogate or interview Grace, who at this point you're like, okay, Grace has like been busted out, and she's fine, right? This is a few days later, it looks like. This, yeah, it seems like she's in her clo- her own clothes and she's at home. So the cop from the beginning of the movie who doesn't like her clearly and who was doing a shitty job investigating this initial murder, he's like pushing her and pushing her about details about the murder. And Grace, you know, Grace has been effectively brainwashed by Emile. She's been hypnotized. She's been hypnotized. She says there's no body. Nothing happened. It was all a mistake. It was all a ridiculous mistake. There was no murder. Yeah. I thought this was funny. (laughs) This cop who hates her has brought her a box of chocolates. 
to try to get her to talk. <laughs> and he's like, you won't give me any information. You were so convinced there was a murder. What do you want? I brought you a box of candy. Yeah. And I was laughing at this stupid scenario where I was like, this would have been a lot more helpful before if you'd believed her. Would have been a lot more helpful if you'd believed her the first time, friend. So the cop is like, what about the private detective that you were talking about? You guys knew that the body was in the couch. What does he think? And I'm like, if you know that the body's in the couch and you know that the private detective is after the couch... Why aren't you making contact with the private detective yeah. if everyone knows the body is in the couch? Oh, yeah. And this is where it blew my mind, because then the end scene, it cuts to the couch. I was screaming. You should have heard me. <laughs> <laughs> couch sitting outside. There's a cow, a black and white cow standing next to this couch. It's at a train station in Canada. How do we know? Because there's a giant Canadian flag flying on the roof pull back to reveal a man working on a telephone pole across the train tracks, which is the private detective staring at the couch with binoculars. And then the end. Yeah. And that made me crazy, because I was like, why are we still spying on the couch? The couch isn't going to do anything on itself. Get the body out of the couch. Why are you staring at it? Why did they end up dropping it at this train station out in the open, where the body could still be found? Why isn't the private detective doing anything about it? I wrote down, is this what they teach you at your fancy Brooklyn detective school? (laughs) Just stare at the couch. Yeah, I mean, the couch wasn't contained. No one was guarding the couch. It was just outside hanging out with this cow. And then then a farmer comes and gets the cow like, oh, what are you doing out here? (laughs) The hell? But not the couch. So he's still keeping an eye on that couch. And that's what he seemingly is going to do for the rest of his life. Because that's how the movie ends. I couldn't believe it. And no one is going to connect those dots ever. We're never going to no find No one's ever going to look into the couch. I guess that a private <laughs> investigator is going to keep the info to himself and keep staring at it for all time. Who the fuck knows? I was, I was definitely bellowing. I wish you could have heard it. <laughs> <laughs> that ending. I feel like I know when you're going to have like strong reactions to stuff and I can kind of like sense it. Is she yelling? I know this? Dee Dee's freaking out yeah. about this scene too. Because I was freaking out. I started laughing hysterically, and Peter was like, What's What happening? is this ending? <laughs> the the end over him with the binoculars staring at a couch just made me laugh. There, there was no one around for him to like be putting on this Why charade didn't you make for. A call? No call one else somebody. at the train Found station. The body. Now just I'm going to stare at it from over look here. In the couch. I'm going to get up on this utility pole and watch it with my binoculars from what, 20 feet away with my binoculars? He just wanted to see this journey that this couch was on follow it to the end. So that was Sisters. Did you like this movie? I will tell you that I did like it, uh, except for parts of it that I thought were extremely silly, which is including the ending. Mm -hmm. Grace is meant to be this like really incredible character. And yet one second of hypnosis completely wiped out her will to figure out the story, which I really hated. I mean, I don't think anyone's supposed to like Emil the Doctor, but I really hated him. He's obviously supposed to be the villain, so it's okay that I hated him. I did think that the first half of the movie was much stronger than the second half. It was more interesting, and then I felt like it derailed pretty hard. It did derail, I feel like. It got really messy and confusing, and I had to go back and reread the plot because I was like, what was happening? I totally understood the beginning. Once she got to the hospital and was admitted, I had to go through and read what was actually happening at that point. Hmm, okay. 
I felt like the beginning was giving me some sort of unexpected stuff that was exciting, and then the second half felt to me like I knew what was going to happen, except for that ending. (laughs) There was a lot of interesting themes there around with this black man being murdered by this white woman, and then these white women being institutionalized and uh, kind of like controlled by this grooming ex-husband, but I didn't really feel like any of it went anywhere. I was kind of curious what he would have had to say about what he was trying to say with this or right what were you trying to say interesting themes at some point he just went with kind of a a trope and wrote it out till the end and then gave us a very nonsensical ending in my opinion i could ask this question until the end of days and not understand why that person was just watching the couch in canada and why it was dropped off at a train station when they were (laughs) trying to get rid of evidence I mean, I guess once it gets to Canada, it's home free, right? So you can't do anything about it. Is that how that works? Go over the Canadian border, yeah, you're good? I suppose so. I think that I'm a little bit, um, I'm maybe not the most reliable person to recommend movies anymore because I will just appreciate people just throwing some spaghetti at the wall to see if it sticks. And so all of the craziness in this movie was really working for me, even if I, I wasn't viewing it as like expecting it to be a good movie. And so I was just sort of thrilled by some of the crazy choices that they were making. Oh, I, I liked it. I don't mean to say I didn't like it, but if I had to, like, really think about it, I'd be like, what the fuck? But as far as it being, like, a very specific time and place mm-hmm. and a really specific mood, I can definitely appreciate that. Some of the sequences were incredible, and there was a very specific feeling and time, a slice of life that you can't quite recreate now. And, of course, you know, it made me want to move to Staten Island, so had very <laughs> effective imagery. Oh, I don't know if you noticed this, but at the elevator in Daniel's apartment complex, they had this beautiful red elevator door with, like, a black kind of keyhole in the middle or, like, a circle or something. And next hmm. to it, there were these big gold ashtrays, like, as if to mm. put your ashtray out before you got in the elevator. Yeah. And I really liked just thinking about the utility of the world catering to smokers at that time, which you don't see that anymore. Yeah, and everywhere. There was some very incredible parts of the movie. The very shiny cookies in the bakery and all the shots of the bakery being kind of at counter level were really interesting. I love that cake scene. Yeah, visually I can appreciate a lot about the movie for sure. Yeah, it was really pretty. Car note, Grace had a really cute little gold speedy car emile had this amazing uh, wood paneled station wagon that they were running around in and i just really miss cars of this era i am not a fan of modern cars if we all still were driving around these big sleek tanks i'd be perfectly happy philip had that cool car yeah i love a movie about crazy women (laughs) (laughs) i guess my biggest takeaway is if i if we're gonna go to that part of it Definitely the long sequence, the split screen, was one of the most exciting things I've seen in a really long time in a movie. I think that is something that's really, really interesting about Brian De Palma's movies, has got this very cool way of actually framing things. So I had this idea that Brian De Palma, this is at least the second or third time I've seen him with a a really extreme voyeur fetish type of feeling. Mm -hmm. And... I had to look it up just to see if there are other people talking about it. And the only article I saw pop up was a Variety article from 2016, where the person writing the article actually doesn't (laughs) have very many nice things to say about Brian De Palma, which is interesting. The uh, name of the article is Why I Can't Love Brian De Palma. (laughs) But one of the things that the writer wrote was, he was a scruffy, voyeuristic, 
Hitchcockian conspiracy buff who drenched love scenes in blood and believed in the power of the id to move things. This was an interesting um, breakdown of Brian De Palma as a director. Yeah. I noticed the Hitchcock thing for sure in this. I think it was probably specific because even the person who created all the music, Bernard Herrmann, was a major Hitchcock player and made the music for Psycho, North by Northwest, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Vertigo. It said he also composed the scores for Citizen Kane, The Day the Earth Sits Still, Cape Fear, and Taxi Driver. Oh, wow. That guy is working. many other things. And he made the score for The Twilight Zone, the TV show. Oh. Yeah, I can definitely see a similarity between this score and the Psycho score. It was very intense when it was intense. I really liked the filmmaking, and I loved the music, and I really loved Jennifer Salt, who played Grace. She had an amazing mullet. (laughs) and i learned that she spent more time as a writer and a producer than as an actress and she was actually roommates with margot kidder who played daniel in the 70s Uh they were roommates so it was kind of sweet to know they were friends because i was like you know what they had some pretty good chemistry yeah and i found out she has written several episodes of american horror story and ratchet that nurse ratchet show amongst many other things like nip tuck and all that oh wow i was interested in jennifer salt for sure Was she doing a lot of writing at this time, like in the 70s? It looked like she was doing some writing and producing because her acting credits were pretty spread out. And then her movie credits for other things were kind of interdispersed. But it looked to be that her career as a writer was more prominent later after the 70s. Jennifer Salt was a super babe and I would fully hang out with her now. And I love that she's a writer. I want to look up some of the stuff that she's written and watch it now. I love this movie because I love, as I mentioned, uh, mental institutions in a film. I love a woman being hysterical. I love a woman having a full-on freakout. There was beautiful shots of fluffy pink cakes and satin robes. And so there was just a lot of eye candy. And the camera work, yeah, was amazing. I mean, I feel like this movie is kind of trashy, but in a way that I love. What, What was your favorite good for her moment here? Well, I think in the context of how we've been characterizing good for her, maybe when she gets fed the cake in bed and she just stabs the man to death instead, and she still has a whole cake. (laughs) I didn't want that particular man to die, but I'm like, you know what? You know what you want. Yeah, she killed like a really nice guy, but that scene was so wild. I found this screenshot. This is your good for her moment. I almost want to write good for her like over this image. Check this out. (laughs) oh god it was great yes see i don't even remember seeing this shot i don't think this was in the movie i think this is uh like a Mm -hmm. promo still or something but yes that perfectly depicts what i'm describing that's amazing curled up in your sleeper (laughs) sofa with a big giant ass butcher knife and a birthday cake teetering on the edge of the mattress incredible (laughs) so i would recommend this movie definitely i really enjoyed it this movie had a lot of what the fuck moments and um that is something that i look for in a film and i do even though i said i was screaming about the ending i still love to get outrageously blown away by something that's so uh, i feel so incredulous that i have to yell that I still enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite. Do you remember when we watched 
sleepaway camp, and it was our friend's first time ever seeing it. I'm not going to spoil the end of that one, but it's a real what-the-fuck moment, and our friend had to literally get up and run around the house four times because she was so she got the zoomies worked up. so like so intensely from <laughs> she got the, the reveal zoomies. that yeah she got up and she ran i was at my old house where <laughs> there was a sort of floating wall in the middle of the house where the kitchen was on one side and then we were on the other she and ran she some just, laps yeah she did like four laps around until she winded down i do love that it was that amazing was very special to get those moments where you're just screaming genuinely can't believe it <laughs> all right that was sisters. Is there anything else, uh, movie, book, podcast, or otherwise, that you are yeah, obsessing about right. right now? Here we go. <laughs> I'm I am totally, totally into this TV show called The Sinner, and I'm on season three, and there are only three seasons, so I'm about to be heartbroken because I'm about to be mm. caught up. Yeah. But... What's really interesting about it for anyone who hasn't watched it is that each season focuses on a different individual who committed a crime and the character who remains the same through as a thread, a constant thread through all of them is this detective played by Bill Pullman Mm. and he just rules. (laughs) It's incredible. I like don't want to give anything away, but there is (laughs) this extremely satisfying kink that Bill Pullman has in season one, mm. where it involves strong women sort of mm. being doing things to him, and it's incredible. Uh, I was like, okay. what's happening the first time I saw it? You just made me want to watch it, and I yeah. can't think of a better <laughs> straight-from-casting type guy to be in that role than Bill it's Pullman. It's incredible. Because he's like the everyman, right? White He is so good that I was telling my partner this morning that when I'm done with this show... Uh, how am I going to get my Bill Pullman fix? And he was like, watch Lost Highway. I was like, oh, oh, yeah. That's another one I haven't seen all the way through. Maybe we should put that, that on the list. interesting to watch because I know I've seen so many clips of it and I know I've only watched part of it. And I don't remember why I didn't finish it, except that I might have been like really high and freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Pullman is in so many things. You could really spend some time with him. He's He's in a lot of stuff. But, like, seeing him play this type of character is such a... It's so interesting. I feel like it's not that kind of character that you get to see on TV very often. You've sold me with that Bill Pullman detail. I'm gonna have to I, do- I don't want to tell you the details, but when you have watched it, I need you to tell me so that we can talk about it. Because there is some stuff going on with him in that that I'm just like... <laughs> <laughs> I love it because we've actually been like... Well, all of us, the world is sort of running out of content to watch because we've had so much time right now during COVID to watch things. Mm -hmm. And I have a partner where we have a hard time agreeing on things to watch. I am generally more interested in watching things that are serious or a little bit more involved mentally, and he kind of wants to escape. Yeah. So we have the shows that we can watch together, and we generally like to have like a vintage TV show that we watch that really get into because then we can like take some edibles really get into the wardrobe and the scenery it started off with hawaii 50 a couple years ago which people should really watch this it's all set in hawaii the costumes are amazing and then we moved on to miami vice which Dee Dee has heard me talk about way more than anybody in the year 2021 should be talking about miami vice <laughs> um <laughs> and lately 
we started watching The Brady Bunch, which, funny enough, I haven't actually seen that much Brady Bunch because I grew up with hippie parents, and The Brady Bunch was one of the shows that my dad didn't want us to watch. And the reasoning that he gave was that we had a split family, too. Like, I have a half-brother and sister that he, that were around when he married my mom and had me, and he didn't want us watching this idealized version of this joined family and thinking that if we weren't that way, we were doing something wrong. I think he just thought it was obnoxious, like, too wholesome, and he just didn't want to have it on in the background. So I've had this, like, really bad impression of Brady Bunch all these years, and it's actually... I mean, it's corny, it's super wholesome, but it is still pretty enjoyable to watch. And actually, the relationship between the kids and the parents is a lot more thoughtful than I was expecting it to be. They, like, talk out every situation with their kids on their level. It's very rare that the kids are ever, like, in trouble or anything. So it's just an interesting, like, time capsule kind of show. And, of course, the costumes. Oh, my God, the costumes. And the bedrooms and the house they live in. That house, it has this crazy open living room slash foyer that they're always hanging out in that I'm obsessed with. Did you ever watch the movies, like, in the made in the 90s? (laughs) <laughs> we actually rewatched the 90s movie after we've been watching brady bunch for yeah. a couple weeks yeah it's, it's pretty, pretty funny. funny it holds yeah. up <laughs> it's pretty funny and rupaul is the the high school counselor and yes i love those that cameos from like the original cast uh-huh i know it's funny the cast they never were in much else after brady bunch except for cameos as themselves as brady bunch people totally yeah what a funny childhood. How strange. Yeah, it's fairly bizarre. Anyway, so check out Brady Bunch, everybody. <laughs> Hot take. You heard it here first. You heard it here. Hot off the presses. <laughs> uh, I just really love those time capsule shows. Oh, yeah. Though. I love those time a, capsule shows. That's a big one. And now's where we say uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> was our episode thank you for joining us VOTV is created by Darcy and Didi and features original music by Grace Peters if you want to share your cinema obsessions find us on Patreon at Vamps on the Verge to weigh in on what you want us to watch vote up your favorites and find out what we're watching ahead of time so you can watch along you can also follow us at Bamps on the Verge on Instagram. We'll be posting all of our favorite movie stills, memes, and more. 